0: Tēnā Koto, nō mai of mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. First up today, as house prices surge to even giddier heights, the Reserve Bank Governor says
1: he's ready to step in. We now have a mandate and I am very eager on it because it upsets me that so much capital goes into such a small, particular asset class. Then, trans-Tasman detainees,
0: deportations and flat-out
2: disrespect. It's taking the trash out, then we
1: can make Australia a safer place.
0: This is Australia exporting its garbage to New Zealand. And is spoiling the perfect night sky the price we have to pay for progress? Why advancing technology could mean our horizons never look the same.
3: Without a degree of international global cooperation around it, it is going to be a problem.
0: There needs to be regulation in this area. We will have that story for you soon. $100,000. 100 grand, 100k, that's about how much the median house price increased in Auckland and Wellington last month, according to new data from the Real Estate Institute. It is the largest monthly increase in 25 years. But after Finance Minister Grant Robertson directed the Reserve Bank to consider ways it can calm the housing market, the bank governor Adrian Orr feels newly empowered to introduce changes. Mr Orr said recently he felt sympathy for young Kiwis trying to buy their first homes. Katie Bradford asked him if that sympathy would mean much to those who can't afford to buy a house.
1: Uh, my is not, um, our actions will, um, but our actions need to be done with not just the Reserve Bank but a very holistic approach. Um, as you know, the Reserve Bank can mostly impact the demand for housing, um, there's a big supply problem of housing, so this is a, both a short term uh, issue here, right here, right now, but it's also a much longer term issue across both housing supply and alternative places to invest.
4: And is that part of the problem? Is that people see housing as a right, as the only place to invest? We're almost obsessed with housing in New Zealand. I,
1: I believe that is strongly the case. Um, you know the, what monetary policy has done is lower interest rates. It's, it's uh, encouraged people to go out there and use their money. That's the purpose of monetary policy. Um, we didn't say go out there and buy only homes or houses. There is a full array of places where you can invest. But New Zealanders, New Zealanders keep going. to housing Um, and why and i think a big part of it is just access to leverage access to debt it's so simple you can leverage you think that you're on the win um, but it's primarily because you're highly leveraged
4: Have we encouraged people to do that, though? Do young people see investors as the only way in?
1: What frustrates me is no one uh, change will um, resolve this issue. We have to work together and do many changes. So it's about access to the debt. It's about the ability to take on so much leverage for the investor. It's about being able to fund yourself uh, at at the interest only. Um, It's about really taking on risks, which you probably aren't thinking of when you do that. It's all advantage towards housing all of the time as an investment and so we need to think hard about that and start making real change leverage uh, taxation as well as the supply side uh, are the drivers.
4: Is that a bit of a dig at the government there because the government's asked you to to look at LVRs to debt to income ratios interest only uh, loans for investors But are they doing enough on their side? Are you being pressured to do too much on your side?
1: Well, I would say, clearly, both this government and all governments for a long time. This didn't suddenly just arrive. This is, uh, in my lifetime, I think it's probably the fifth house price price. Cycle and um, so through time, the governments have found it too hard, too difficult politically to make some of the big intergenerational changes that are needed. You know, governments are elected every three years, these are intergenerational changes, Uh, and so now it's extremely difficult. You mentioned uh, sympathy for a certain generation, demographically, globally, we are getting old. Um, and that's where the median voter is and those are the people who own the assets. So there is a political economy problem here and it's going to need courage to work through. Um, and the instruments we have at the Reserve Bank uh, both add to that problem and also even reducing house prices may increase the issue, the problem for first home buyers, people who want to be actually live in the house rather than hold it as an investment. A loan-to-value ratio, for example, means that, that you can uh, borrow less and that's much harder to buy your first home. A debt-to-income um, ratio means that, you, again, you can take on less debt that makes it harder to buy your first home. So while they may uh, hold house prices down, um, they're doing it through making it harder to enter that asset class. So there's no free lunch from the Reserve Bank type policy set, but there has to be courage to be doing these things for the long term.
4: So are you saying you're doing what you can and you're looking at do what you can but the government isn't doing that?
1: Uh, we haven't done enough of what we can do and that's what we will be doing over the next few months. Um, our aim around our what we call our macro prudential tools, loan to value ratios, uh, capital holdings, we've been focused on the financial stability of the banking system as a whole. We haven't been focused on specific asset classes. Um, the, the letter that we received from the Minister has really given us, uh, allows us now to focus far more on that specific asset class. In fact, it, it instructs us to.
4: We're yet to see whether LVRs have made a difference too early, but would debt to income ratios make a bigger difference do you think? And how how do you look at targeting those? How do you look at those making sure yeah. they do actually only impact investors?
1: It's hard to say whether LVR versus DTI, which one's going to be more effective because we don't have a, a, a long history on it. I would say from, from a first principles concept, uh, debt to income would be more impactful. Um, But by being impactful it means it's more harsh on those first home buyers um, on that side. And targeting anything, you know, these are blunt instruments. And so, trying to finally target using a blunt instrument—you know—it's trying to kill the fly with the mallet. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's difficult. But that's, you know, being difficult is not an excuse not to try.
4: Would you just get rid of interest-only loans for investors? How much of the market of for investors, you know, do actually rely on those interest-only yeah, loans? I,
1: I, I, it's too early to actually tell where the, the the work is ongoing right at the moment. But that's clearly one of the first things. What role do interest-only loans really? play? play? Is it largely the investors who are using it only? And can we target just um, a particular subset? And so, uh, you know, over the next few weeks, this isn't going to take a long time, we're operating under, you know, we want to get this right. Um, We will be talking very specifically about where they sit and what we do. We need to go back to the government around actually the, uh, um, you know, it's, it's their decision as to whether we get the debt to income tools, the interest only we can work with more clearly.
4: How worried are you about the growing inequality this is causing, creating in New Zealand between those who have been able to buy into house, whose parents own houses, whose parents own multiple houses and those who never stand a chance?
1: Uh, extremely worried. You know, this is what keeps me awake at night is not what's going to happen next because we don't know. But it's around when we are, when I'm talking from the Reserve Bank perspective, you know, we've had to do some significant uh, rapid changes uh, over time through this COVID 19 period, particularly. Some of those changes embed those behaviours that if the insiders uh, benefit, the outsiders remain outsiders. Now, this isn't specific to New Zealand, this is the global challenge. You know, this is social cohesion, cultural inclusion, and even environmental sustainability. All of these things have been put into the back into the back seat while we have operated under emergency. But technology change has meant returns to capital is winning, returns to labor, wages is sitting behind. Uh, those who own the assets are growing, um, are getting the wealth. Those who don't own the assets are looking less than likely to to own them. And so structural change needs to happen and we need to transition in a in a sustainable manner, not in a not in a um, a unpleasant manner.
4: By getting rid of the RVRs last year and using the tools you have to lower interest rates, how much responsibility do you take for that inequality?
1: Uh, I would say the inequality has been decades in growing and this is a small blip at the end of a long-term trend. Uh, the LVR removal last, last year was because we needed to act with emergency and get cash flow and liquidity into the, into the economy. Uh, well, what's the point of doing that if, if it's our plug that's stopping it from flowing to where it, need, where it needed to go? So I've got no issue with removing that and we've put them back on as soon as we had confidence that we were through that initial shock, economic shock. Um, Can I also just remind you that the single biggest um, determinant of equality is whether you are or aren't in the labour force. And so the lower interest rates are for our mandate maximise our contribution to sustainable employment. So all of these issues around house prices or not pale to insignificance if you don't actually have a job. And so our role has been around low and stable inflation, maximising employment um, and the outcomes where you're seeing some of these outcomes, for example house prices, yes they are problems but they have been secondary to our primary purpose of keeping people in jobs.
4: How many houses do you own? Two. Would you say to future generations, to your kids or your grandkids, nephews, nieces, to, to invest in property now? Is that, is that where you would encourage them to do? Uh,
1: no, far from it. I live in one house and the other one is where the kids and it's a family holiday place. And um, no, I would not encourage people to be rushing in, and I never have done in my life, to rush into leveraged investments uh, around the house. Uh, having a place that you can call home doesn't mean you have to own it. I would say there are big issues in New Zealand around the rental market, the structures around the rental market. Um, I lived in France for a few years, I ticked a box or we we ticked the box for the uh, unfurnished home. We had to bring our own taps, our own faucets. When you were a tenant in Europe you are there for as long as you like um, type structures. So owning and having somewhere to live are very different concepts and we confuse it all of the time.
4: How worried are you about the amount of debt people are getting into?
1: There are specific pockets of householders or, or, or people in New Zealand who are over leveraged and you just have to think for a moment, you have to think about what if interest rates increased? What if I was out of employment for a while? What if my investment property didn't have someone living in it because they couldn't afford the rent that was needed to justify the price you paid? People aren't thinking clearly about that all the time. They think about here and now and with this expectation that capital gains will always go north. They don't. A lot of people who already own a home or have owned a home for a long time are in very good equity positions but you know there was always the pocket. It was similar for the dairy industry. Very high debts, but allocated to a small proportion of the total farmers.
4: Do you have confidence that things are gonna continue on the track they are, we're gonna keep seeing things better than expected?
1: Uh, confidence subject to us being able to uh, maintain a very stimulatory monetary policy. So you know, while we're talking about um, house prices rising, meanwhile we're retaining a very stimulatory lower interest rates, um, and we're doing that because the economy still needs a tailwind to pushing it along. A lot of what's pulled us out of our most recent economic dark space have been one-offs, massive fiscal stimulus, uh, the monetary policy easing. Uh, we've seen uh, the bounce back in consumer spending. We haven't seen business investment. And my confidence will come when the business investment confidence is there and we're seeing really long-term plans being put into action again.
4: So people should look at investing in businesses rather than houses?
1: Uh, I always think you should be looking, spreading your investments um, and New Zealand now, and only only very recently now, has very simple, low cost effective ways of getting access to, to a global portfolio of investments. So think hard, if, you, if your wage only comes from one job, then you're not diversified. If your wealth only comes from one asset, you're not diversified. Um, so think hard around, how do I spread Um, these eggs um, more widely That was Adrian Orr with Katie Bradford Coming up, our panellists
0: unpack the National Party's review of last year's election, but next, more tension in the relationship between the Australian and New Zealand governments
5: This is a deplorable move by the Australian government uh, that we completely disagree with, however, however, having said that um,
0: they are entitled to do it Welcome back to Q&A. Taking out the trash. That's how Australia's Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, this week described the deportation of New Zealand citizens after they'd been convicted of crimes in Australia. In a made-for-TV moment, his officials even allowed a reporter to film and question the deportees as they were handcuffed and frog-marched onto a plane back to New Zealand. Melissa Conley tyler is a research fellow at the University of Melbourne and the former director of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. She is with us now. Tenakwe. Welcome to Q&A. Let's start with Peter Dutton's comments on the 501 deportations. How have they been received by Australians?
6: Look, they've probably been noticed less in Australia than New Zealand. Um... Clearly, it wasn't a very diplomatic way of putting things. Uh, I think our leaders struggle sometimes to understand that when you say something for a domestic audience, it's also going to be heard overseas, and you have to think about what message that's sending. I think there is a genuine difference in the way that Australia and New Zealand are seeing this. Uh, Since 9-11, Australia has taken a view that living in Australia is a a privilege, and it's a privilege that can be revoked and taken away. And I I think New Zealand still has much more of an idea of the responsibility that a country has towards its citizens and to people who have lived most of their life in that country. So I, I think there's a different Different policy approach that we're seeing play
0: out. (laughs) A significant difference in policy approach. When we're talking about the 501 deportations, though, there is a difference, is there not, between defending the policy and actively promoting the policy, which is what Peter Dutton appeared to be doing this week.
6: Look, I think that's his political style. Um, You know, he he wants to look tough uh, and if the best you've got is these deportations, you can say, I'm keeping this country safe and look tough with it. Um, I I think, from Australia's perspective, I think most citizens don't really know or very much about this. Um, They probably haven't thought much about it. Uh, When most Australians think about New Zealand, it's actually very warm. Um, so every time that Australians are asked what are the countries in the world you you feel fondest about, they always put New Zealand top. So um, Australians tend to be really surprised when they hear that there are any issues. So, you know, there was a... 90-year dispute over apples, and I'm sure New Zealanders knew a hell of a lot more about it than Australians ever did. We just we assume we like each other and we're going to get on, and it's always a surprise when we discover, oh, actually, we have a difference here, something mm. that we've got to deal with diplomatically, as we do with all countries.
0: Mm. Over the last few months, we have seen tensions over the 501s, tension over the future mm-hmm. of a New Zealand-born, Australian-raised uh, ISIS supporter, tensions mm-hmm. over the trans-Tasman bubble, Is the relationship worsening? Mm.
6: Look, I would say that there are these issues from time to time. Um, If you look over the long spread, I think over the last 20 years or so, there has been more divergence between Australia and New Zealand. Uh, I I, I put that back to sort of, you know, John Howard, Helen Mm. Clark sort of era. There there was a divergence in how we saw a number of issues. Uh, And I think we get surprised sometimes to realise that, actually, we don't look exactly the same anymore. We have quite different approaches on some issues. Um, For Australia, one of the things that I find fascinating and I hope Australia will learn from New Zealand is uh, we get surprised by just how bicultural the approach to foreign policy is now. Um, And that's not a transition we've made ourselves in the same sort of way. So um, when your incoming foreign minister uh, made a fantastic speech to the diplomatic corps, uh, you know, it was so clear that those values infuse what New Zealand's doing in foreign policy, you know, the way you see yourselves in the world. Um, And I don't think we have that same sort of statement of values infusing what we do.
0: There would be some people, though, who who look at that values-based approach in New Zealand and say, well, actually, it's not winning us many gains, Uh, certainly not in in the trans-Tasman relationship at the moment. Do you think New Zealand needs to get tougher?
6: Um, look, in diplomacy, it's always a question of what you've got to work with. Um, I mean, if New Zealand has things that it can threaten, that it thinks that will change Australia's policy, it should try them. Um, there are sometimes, however, where you have very little tools in the armoury, as in you can keep complaining, And you can keep saying, we don't like this. And you can hope that eventually that changes the perspective. Um, But this happens to Australia in our relationships as well. Um, We would like countries to behave in a certain way, and they just don't. Mm. Um, And that's the reality of diplomacy. Um, Sometimes it takes a very long time. Like, you know, that 90-year Apple dispute I mentioned. Mm. Sometimes you just have to keep working away, trying to get your point of view across.
0: From your perspective, does New Zealand have any tools?
6: Um, not really my place to advise but uh that
0: means not I, I <laughs>
6: <laughs> I, I, i'm not sure there's that much leverage on some of these issues mm. um absolutely uh one thing i found interesting about the you know the current current disputes is um again that idea of whether australia can learn from New zealand uh which i'm fascinated by uh, I think that's one where Australians just don't want to hear. So, Mm. um, something like, for example, the Trade Minister, correctly saying look at how we're going in our relationship with China that did not go down well because Australia did not want to think about how its relationship could be different or whether it might have mishandled it so um, yeah I suggest probably keeping focused on the fairness Mm. issues around some of these Um, would Australia like to be treated the same way that new zealand's being treated and can you keep making that fairness argument
0: and perspective is important isn't it how much more does china and do asian countries feature in australian foreign policy compared to new zealand
6: uh, i think in both countries huge um so obviously we we both have you know trade issues we both have security issues mm. and i think one thing australia needs to learn actually is that it's not alone in having to face these issues. Um, That's why I think learning from others is so useful. You know, South Korea has the same issues. Singapore has the same issues. So many countries have the same issues. And learning from how they're balancing the need to push back to China on security issues, but also engage economically, that gives us more ideas of how we can manage ourselves. Um, So that's one of the reasons I think we can learn from New Zealand.
0: All right, thank you so much for your time and expertise. We really appreciate it. Melissa Conley-Tyler. Thank
6: Send you. us your thoughts. We're on Twitter
0: at NZQA. You can email us, QA at tvnz.co.nz. Our panel is here next. And then later, as Rocket Lab prepares to launch cluster satellites, more than 100 different companies have similar plans. But will it change our view forever? Tēnā koutou, welcome back to Q&A. The National Party will not be making public its review of last year's election campaign. The election, of course, resulted in the party caucus being almost halved in size, but current national MPs weren't given their own copies of the review to take away. Here with their thoughts are our panellists this morning, lawyer and National Party member Liam here, and Sir Moroni, who's a former MP, Labor Party member, and CEO of Community Law Centres of Aotearoa. Kia ora koutou. Kia ora Uh, What does it say that no national MPs have been given individual copies of this report, Liam?
7: Uh, I think it says a few things. First of all, I think it says that uh, uh, the report probably wasn't written in a way that the um, party would want to see it released, and I think it was probably a mistake. I mean, my understanding is is that the report does go into some detail, um, naming names and so on and so forth, and that's the type of thing that any party wouldn't want to have in the public domain. I guess my issue with with that is that I think it's kind of inevitable that that type of thing does work its way into the public domain. Um, I remember uh, after the 2014 election, Labour did an internal review, and that was in fact leaked to the media before it even hit Andrew Little's hands. Um, So I just think it's a bit naive to think that you would be able to keep it secret, and if you are going to do a review like that, you need to write it in a way that you are happy for it to get into the public. I mean, party members will have some access to some of the detail, though yeah in a really controlled way which is which is kind of frustrating right like if you wanted me mm. like if the national party wants to pay me fifty thousand dollars to give them a report on why they lost the election i'll do it right now right um they were leading the polls according to tvnz in the start of the year covid happened the government did a tremendous job of handling it they changed leaders twice right you know i've, I've seen them my invoice to the party right but the <laughs> instead you've got this really long report you've got all these mm. rumors circulating about what's in it Uh, And because the report's secret and members don't know about it, they've got no way of knowing whether those sort of rumours are true or not. Mm. So I think it's the worst of both worlds. Do you agree with Liam's assessment, sir?
2: Yeah, I do, actually. Um, They're fraught issues because you do want to have some analysis and some feedback, particularly when you've had a disastrous result. Um, Mm. Labour did something similar in 2014, as um, Liam has alluded to. Uh, The difference there was that actually um, the MPs didn't even get to see that report. So, you know, you'd have to ask the question about what is the value. How did you feel about that at the time? I mean, it seems crazy. Well, it's a question about what is the value of doing a review if some of the main actors and the main players actually don't know what the outcomes are. Mm. So I think it is complicated for political parties. It's much more complicated than probably any other organisation reviewing Mm. its performance because of the, I guess, the public interest um, and the detail of that. So it it is quite a tricky thing to navigate. Of course, the
0: the result last year was devastating for for National, for want of a better word. I think about some of those electorates that the party lost, the likes of Langatata, for example. Do you sense that the party has lost touch with its roots a little bit? Uh,
7: Yeah, yeah, I think perhaps a little bit. um, And this is one one thing that concerns me a little bit about the the report and things you hear about for example, is that perhaps those lessons haven't been learned a little bit. So can I give you an example? Mm. Right. So one of the things that you hear around the place and is that um, the report suggests that um, if the party wants to recapture the lost, lost ground, it's got to be a lot less accommodating to the Christians in the party and to um, pull back on allowing conscience votes and becoming a more socially progressive party. Um, but if you go and talk to the hundreds of thousands of votes that the party lost in, for the provincial South Island, I mm. mean, um, the idea that... Um, you know, the party lost those folks because it wasn't woke enough, is actually pretty risible. Now, whether or not that detail's in the report or not, it's something something that's circulating and that's the problem again with the secrecy. Okay,
0: so I just want to pick up on that because I remember heading into the election last year, national MPs were whipped on what was a conscious issue around cannabis reform, but there are other significant conscious issues that are of importance to, you know, conservative Christians in New Zealand, the likes of abortion, for example. Mm -hmm. So, could the report be suggesting that, um, that that national MPs would all have to take a certain position well that's, on something
7: like abortion? Well, I mean it could suggest that yeah from what i 've heard it goes along that way. I mean The bottom line is this right? the national party is not like labor it doesn 't have a coherent ideology it 's town liberals, the moneyed interests, and provincial voters who tend to be more conservative. When the party um, is uh, working really well, um, uh, there's a live-and-let-live attitude within the party. When the party's not working well, one of those two sort of elements is trying to dominate the other. When you have a suspicion that one is trying to dominate the other, that's when the party is never going to stop talking about itself. And I'm sure Sue would agree that when the party's always talking about itself, it's not talking about things New Zealanders care about.
0: Mm. Okay, let's talk about some of the other things New Zealanders care about. House prices, astonishing figures this week, the highest monthly jump from those Real Estate Institute figures in 25 years. What responsibility should the government take, Sue?
2: Well, I want to talk about the elephant in the room, um, Jack, because it is about uh, a capital gains tax. The uh, Reserve Bank governor made reference to that in his interview with you this morning about taxation, and also um, just this week the International Monetary Fund came out and recommended that New Zealand needs a capital gains tax as well. So, look, these are not um, these are not. Uh, fringe organisations who are suggesting this. In fact, you might describe both of those organisations as being somewhat economically conservative, and they see the merit in this. So it has to be part of the package and no one seems to want to talk about the elephant in the room.
0: Including the Prime Minister?
2: Absolutely. Now that, that elephant is actually sitting on future generations. Mm. They cannot get um, involved in the housing market until that and many other issues are addressed in housing. Uh,
0: I'm sure there are many economists who would actually say, yep, perhaps a capital gains tax would go some way to slowing the growth in the housing market but essentially this is a supply problem and actually CGT isn't going to be a panacea.
7: I mean that's my view and I base it on the fact that the tax working group itself said that uh, that would be a marginal difference Mm. in house prices only. It would be slight upward pressure on rents and slight downward pressure on houses. That's the government's own tax working group. Now we're at the point now where marginal differences Aren't going, to, aren't going to cut it you know it's a, a, a slow down da- slowing down in the rate of growth is not going to help people get into housing all of those the little um nips and tucks that you talked about um age with adrian or none of those things are going to address the problem there are not there are uh, more people that want houses than there are houses to have mm. like it's as simple as that really in my view is unless you can cut that Gordian knot and somehow get more houses, mm. everything else you're doing is nibbling around the edges, and it's not a nibbling around the edges problem anymore. Well, okay. Of course
2: it's got to be a range of measures, but if each of those measures aren't mm. involved in it, then you are not going to get the desired effect. And what we've got is we've got um, we've got anyone under the age of 35 are getting, I feel, increasingly angry and frustrated about the status quo being the situation. They are actually looking for um, our generation to do the things that they should have been doing all the way along. I, I just wonder what the end game is.
0: Like how, I mean, if, 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 if I mean, so, so say say we nibble around the edges. Say you know, we, we over the space of three or four years address some of the supply issues. We reform the RMA. We we I don't know introduce debt to loan ratios. All those sorts of things. It Antique still version. seems unlike, Well, it seems unlikely yeah. without drastic. Policy changes that will see a reduction in house prices.
7: So, so, I, so I work in this area, right? Yeah. So I'm a provincial lawyer. I've got a team of um, three lawyers who work under me, and a lot of them do a lot of first house buyers. It's was incredibly, incredibly depressing because actually, it's a really narrow set of people who can be in that category of first mm. home buyers now. Um, and we're at the point now where I think we have, to, I think we do have to concede a little bit that we do, we will have a lost generation in terms of house ownership. It's, That's a big concession. It is, him. but 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 look at the scale of the problem, right? Mm. So the next thing is we've got to move on to giving more security and better conditions for renters, and like that has got to be the priority. If you bring housing affordability back twenty five percent, you're getting to two thousand nineteen, yeah. right? That's the people you, you're not helping. We well, in a the, crisis then as well. You're like, not you're yeah. not helping ordinary people there, yeah. right? right? You're making you're helping people in the upper mm. um, upper middle class a little bit more. The, the, we've, we've got to bite the bullet, and I think we are really deep into this mm. now successes of government's faults including nationals and uh, you know we're we're going to take a harm reduction approach and the harm reduction approach is going to have to be sorting after uh, looking after renters in the meantime we're going to see people living with their parents um, a lot longer I think people sharing houses and more crowded housing because ultimately too many people, not enough houses.
2: That's the only outcome. Mm. Not prepared to concede a lost generation. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's the wrong thing to do. It's the wrong approach to take. And we also need to, as the Reserve Bank governor was talking about, make sure that there's not a disincentive for people to be investing into business, yeah. because at the moment but there it's all is a question <laughs> of leverage,
0: isn't it? I mean, if you've got if you've got the equity in your property going up by however much, you can yeah. you can borrow against it, and the banks much more likely to take yeah, on that kind of absolutely. Yeah. I mean,
7: all bank lending in New Zealand, for the most part, is based on land. Like yeah. Yeah, there's an asset behind it at some point. But that can be fixed. Yeah. But, but the Governor-General pointed out we've got to separate the idea of housing as consumption from housing as ownership. All right. I think that the first priority has got to be we've got to make sure that people have access mm. to secure places to rent that are healthy and affordable. That's where I think the most of the focus has got to be. So that's really interesting. Sue, so though,
0: from your experience, do you think Labour with a majority government at the moment, has the political will to do something drastic in this space?
2: Well, I don't think that they've got a choice, really, because I think there is growing um, resentment and anger around the issue, and I do think that the public mood is is changing as well. We've got a number of organisations now coming out um, that are much more conservative than a a social democratic uh, government should be. Actually asking them to take that particular measure so at some point they've actually got to look at that really seriously, understand that the world has changed since certain commitments were made, understand that the public mood is changing on this and actually do the, the thing that they know will work because it has been Labour policy in the past. I mean they might extend the pipeline right
7: to 10 years yeah. or something like that, find something well, They ruled, they've ruled that out in the, ca- yeah, the, yeah. in the campaign and Jacinda said no capital gains tax, while well, I'm Prime Minister. But, but as as the tax working group said, yeah, yeah, we get the point. Um, uh, I want to talk about the trans Tasman relationship a little bit. Do you think New Zealand's naive? I think New Zealand's the the little brother. I mean, look, I've got three kids, okay, Mm. and um, the first kid loves all his brothers, but he doesn't think about them in the same way. He's got cool things. He goes to school. He's got cooler things to do. It's just when you're the smaller party, the the junior partner, it's horrible and cringing to think about it like that. We're always not going to be front of mind mm. for Australians, and we just have to accept that, I think, you know.
2: I think we've got to take every opportunity, and I don't think every opportunity has been taken around the issue of the deportation. Mm. Um, Australia was actually in front of the UN in January this year on its human rights record. There was no commentary from the New Zealand government um, yeah. around the human rights issue on this deportation issue, and there should have been. That's yeah.
0: interesting. So you think we can we can be tougher?
2: Well, there are other avenues. Um, mm. Again, they're not going to be the magic bullet that's going to fix it. Australia's not going to suddenly go, yeah. oh gosh, you know, the UN's told us we'd better sort this, so we're going to. It's actually but it does a bit of dignity. It is, right. it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you've got to put that international pressure yeah. on. I think um, the interview uh, beforehand actually said that Australians don't particularly like being embarrassed on the international stage. Mm. They think they can talk to their domestic audience, but then when it goes beyond that, then that starts to cause them to think a little differently about it. I've actually done some work on this issue on the deportees Mm. um, and, and gone to Australia and talked with New Zealanders over there. Many of them don't even know that mm. this human rights abuse is happening all the time for people who um, have have actually, with low-level crime, and some people who haven't been convicted of anything at all yeah. being deported back to New Zealand when they don't have a connection to this country. Mm.
7: Mm. The dignity thing is important, I think. Uh, you know, I mean, ultimately, Australia do have the right to choose who lives in their country and who doesn't, and, mm. you know, where, and where people who aren't their citizens, uh, when, what terms they can say there. The first and last duty of the New Zealand government, of course, has to always be to stick up for New Zealand citizens. You know, and mm. to not say anything. And no matter who they are and what they've done, they're still New Zealanders. And there's the this absolute duty of New Zealand government of all colours mm. to do that.
0: Yeah, one wonders if uh, Peter Dutton is a student of history because he might get an alarming surprise when he finds out how his country was colonised. All right, thank you yeah. so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Liam here and Moroni. Up next, a report into the government's progress on mental health reform describes frustration from those on the front lines. And then, better internet means much busier skies.
3: We can all look up and see the night sky, and to have that be changed by industrial activity without any conversation, that seems a tragedy.
0: Hawkeye, mai, welcome back to Q&A. Two years since the inquiry into mental health and addiction, people on the front lines say they're frustrated at the pace of change. Forty recommendations were made in the inquiry. A report into its progress by the Interim Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission has just been released. And Health Minister Andrew Little is with us this morning. Tēnā koe, Good morning. Good morning. So they delivered the report to you in December. Mm-hmm. It was released publicly on the Friday afternoon of the tsunami alert. I just wondered whose decision was it to release that report? Then uh,
8: we had planned the release uh, for that time. We obviously we didn't plan for a tsunami. It went out that morning. I know people have tried to make something about that. Um, this is from the same people who were claiming that it should have you know, uh, uh, complaining about the delay in the release. We got it out as quickly as we could after cabinet had, had a chance to be briefed on it, um, and we got it out. So it's there.
0: Okay, we'll go into some of the detail. Um, the, the Mental Health Foundation says the report is a miserable report card. What is your assessment?
8: Uh, well, I don't agree with them. A the Mental Health Foundation's got a very important role to play as an advocate in the sector. I think they've mischaracterised it. I think if you have a look at the report, um, given b- bearing in mind that most of the information that has um, informed that report was collected mm, roughly a year into the rollout of the programme and reported on 18 months into the programme. Mm. So they are quite rightly saying, so. look, here's some things that have been done. Here's the, a number of things, plenty of things that have been started. Um, so there's... Uh, it's starting to make progress. They reflect the frustration that many in the sector are feeling. But this is because we inherited a mental health sector that frankly was in an absolutely appalling state, Mm. absolutely neglected by the previous government. We did the report, reported at the end of uh, 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 2018, we made the single biggest health investment in one sector that we that has ever happened in this hun, this country. One point nine billion dollars mm. into mental health over a four to five year change program. We are roughly, you know, twenty months into that change program.
0: I don't think anyone is questioning the commitment. Yep. I don't think anyone is questioning the investment. We've been through the hundred and sixty pages of this report and mm. it's clear that the commitment and the investment yep. is there. the problem is on the front lines actually getting the change implemented. Yeah.
8: Get that, and, th- and that's why we had, and, and we, we prioritised a number of things. We had to get the Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission set up. We've got the Suicide Prevention Office set up. We've got a suicide prevention strategy. We've got the, and the big ticket item was the access and choice. Getting those services out there to deal with the mild to moderate mental health issues. We now have, what, just over 480 full-time equivalent mm-hmm. new roles delivering those sorts of services around the country. I know some people have claimed it's, you know, it's happened and all the rest of it. We've got to negotiate, The ministry has to negotiate through DHBs, through um, general practice uh, clinics and stuff. So complicated, and, and the big challenge is getting the workforce on board to deliver. And so it has been uneven across the country, but it is happening and it's making a you
0: difference. You say you, you, you have prioritised the areas which, you know, which required the most urgent response. Mm. Uh, page 15 of the report. While progress is visible, other areas prioritised in how Araworanga have had little progress. There is concern that services for people who need them the most mm. are taking more time to roll out, which will lead to increased inequalities.
8: That, you know, the interesting thing about that is uh, the, the big access and choice thing, which is that you know, folks who turn up to, whether it's their GP or some other clinic or community outfit and saying, look, I'm anxious, I've got mm. this, um, and the services that we're putting in place and have done across our, over 160 practices now and clinics means that as soon as they see somebody, a medical professional, they can get referred immediately to somebody, the health improvement practitioner, uh, for talk therapies. They get There's no delay in that. That is being rolled out, that is happening, uh, 90,000, I think, odd sessions now, or 80, 80, just over 80,000 sessions funded, roughly 9,000 sessions mm. a month now happening, and that's going to ramp up, that's going to scale up. So. Um, n- not everybody will be seeing it, but a lot of people are, do, and it's making
0: do it. Do you happen. think people on the front lines have unrealistic expectations about the speed of change?
8: Look, the people on the front line know the crisis that the, the system was in you know, two or three years ago, and, and many of them are still feeling it and sensing it. There is a huge issue with the, the workforce, amazing workforce in mental health, um, who are feeling burnt out and stressed, and and it's a sector that struggles to get new people into it. We're working with the sector and with others to get new people into it. We're doing our best, not just at the mild to moderate end, but also at the acute end. I'm due to get a report in the next couple of months about where we need to focus attention on the acute end of services. I get the frustration, it's been around a while. But we set ourselves this four to five year path and we're on that path.
0: So, is the frustration born of unrealistic ex- expectations?
8: Oh, no, they, they know the problems and they just want to see it fixed and they would like them to have been fixed yesterday. I'm not being facetious about no, that. No, no, I know. Uh, Their the frustration is real. But we have, a, we have a limited capacity to make change and to get a new workforce on board and we're doing the best we can with what we've got.
0: Have you sufficiently engaged with priority groups?
8: Um, Look, I I get the reports from the ministry. I'm satisfied that we are. You know, one of the big areas is um, stepping up in terms of Kāpapa Māori and Pacifica services. Mm. they've had to engage with that. So we've got existing Kāpapa services, what they call the Tuakana sort of stream of work. We've got the new Kāpapa Māori services, the tender stream of work. They had a ministry had a wānanga this month with 11 new providers to look at the services they can provide. One of the things I've been talking to the ministry about is to get away from the competitive model of tendering work but actually work collaboratively. They're mm-hmm. doing that. Um, it is taking time to get those sorts of things in place. but. We, we need to do it. We need to do it right and bring people along with us and get people engaged so that the services that we set up and get funded are enduring and we don't see people sort of set up one year and struggle to sort of get through the next.
0: Page 67 of the report. People told us there has not been enough or in some instances any proactive engagement with priority groups such as rainbow communities, disabled people, youth, older people, veterans, migrants and refugees on strategy development and the design and implementation <coughs> of services. What is clear in the report is that people on the front lines feel like they aren't being consulted in these yep. changes. Yep. They feel like bureaucrats are talking to bureaucrats, but yep. they don't have a say.
8: Yeah, look, I, I hear that, and th- that might be the case in some places, but we've... we've but fun- all throughout well, but, the report. But hold on, but, but Jay, we've, we've, fund, we've funded new rainbow services. We've funded new youth services through, you know, many of them through youth one-stop shops, which is, you know, people people really wanted to see. So there is new stuff happening, and it's happening from, you know, as a result of engagement mm. and consultation. Could we be doing more? Uh, could we be doing better? I'm sure we can, and we will. Mm.
0: Um, recommendation 26 from the inquiry, uh, that the government takes a stricter regulatory approach to the sale and supply of alcohol. Um, uh, when you have been assessed on your progress, it is at the lowest level so far. Why is that?
8: Um, yeah, that, um, that's uh, an area the force, in the area of my, my colleague, the Minister of Justice, Chris Farford, his area. Um, and look, I haven't had a great deal of personal engagement in that particular issue. We know it's there. Um, we it's are the sale, gonna, are sale gonna,
0: and supply of alcohol. Yeah, this,
8: this, is about, this is about this is about or well, the sale and supply of alcohol act is a is, is a justice issue mm. and I question that if you like, but but that's what it is. Um, we know there are issues about marketing and what have you, and uh, we are going to have to come back. And indeed, in the last term of government, we did indicate that we would come back to look at some issues in the Sale and Supply of Alcohol Act. We're going to have to do that at some point.
0: Do you support restricting the sale and marketing of alcohol?
8: Look, this is a debate that we have periodically. We last had a debate, I think, in about 2012, 2013. We've got the legislation that we've got. It is timely to review that legislation. We know that one of the big areas is the local alcohol policies. Mm. Doesn't, doesn't seem to be kind of working particularly effectively. Um, uh, look, we'll come on to that at some particular point. Right now, the critical thing in mental health and addiction services is getting those services up, the mild to moderate services, the extra investment in. Uh, in the areas outside the health system, you know, we're doing a, we're doing a heap in corrections. We're doing it with housing, with, with with dealing with those sort of um, I, allied issues. So I understand. I understand are you, are have, you have.
0: I understand. I mean, it is very clear that this isn't a priority uh, yeah. from from, from um, the report on your progress so far. Um, it is estimated how harmful alcohol use cost New Zealand seven point eight five billion dollars annually. How is that not a priority?
8: Um, well, when you've got people who are not getting their, their, their basic issues attended to and end up month you know, for, for months, um, not getting the support and help they alcohol get. Alcohol has then, a huge then, impact and on this. and then winding up in crisis. Actually, I think we've got to get you know we, we've got to get those services in place, mm. and we're working with uh, look we worked with justice to get uh, alcohol and other drug courts set up for that end of the alcohol problem. But in terms sale of sale and supply, the, yeah. So as I, I go back to what I said before, mm. we well, we know there are issues within that act. Um, uh, we committed in the last term of government to have a look at some of those uh, those outstanding issues at, at some point that will happen
0: And, and, and what is your position as the, as the new health minister? Are you comfortable with the level of alcohol advertising in New Zealand?
8: Uh, look, it's, it's, uh, I think we can do better in terms of the way um, as a country we kind of deal with and consume alcohol There's a number of, kind of issues that underpin that The regulatory regime is one Our marketing regime is one um, accessibility in terms of you know local a- alcohol policies as um, a part of that, um, but I don't look I don't have a whole program of work that I'm thinking about mm. in terms of that uh, right now. You know, with the variety of issues going on in health, not the least of which is mental health and addiction, we've got to get traction on those issues.
0: There are forty recommendations. I, I appreciate that I've just identified a couple there, mm. uh, mainly because they show that you've made the least progress um, of, of those forty recommendations. Um, uh, another quote to you from this report, page 111 people have told us there doesn't seem to be enough action or leadership to make transformative change. You are relatively new to this portfolio implementation is the issue, that's clear how will you improve that?
8: Um, well, I, I, I'm meeting the, um, the relevant health officials every week engaging um what is happening. I, I get the information about, you know, the new stuff that's being rolled out, the new announcements that are being made, where the money is going. We knew that when we started this, you know, the, the $1.1 billion of just health spending and that $1.9 billion dollars, um, it wasn't sort of evenly distributed over four or five years. There was um, a certain amount of spending, the more modest spending in the first couple of years, mm. and then it ramps up after that because we know we know we had to build new capacity in the system, create new um, new parts of the workforce. That's the journey we've been on up to now, um, not even two years into it. Um, the next phase, we will you know, we'll be in a position with bigger capacity to do more um, and, and get more outreach than we've done up to now. So I'm, I'm confident that we are on the track that was planned when we put that $1.9 billion package together.
0: Health Minister Andrew Little, thank you for your time.
9: Up next, Space Jam. Very unexpectedly, for a small nation, um, become a, a you know, country that has to regulate space launch, and there's only you know, a dozen countries in the world that can do that. Ah, Tamari, welcome back
0: to Q&A. While the world is focused on fighting COVID-19, around 100 companies, mainly private, are scrambling to put large numbers of satellites in space. Mega-satellite constellations such as Elon Musk's Starlink cluster help to develop internet connectivity on Earth. But astronomers warn that more clusters will mean blanketing the Earth in satellites, obstructing research and changing the look of our night sky for everyone. So is that the price we have to pay for progress? Reporter Fina Owen explains how New Zealand could play a key role in managing the latest space race.
3: We can all look up and see the night sky, and to have that be changed by industrial activity without any conversation, like that seems
10: a tragedy. last year Elon Musk's long fleets of Starlink satellites appeared in the skies. His company plans to put 42,000 satellites up and now the race is on. This is something that's becoming a global issue where multiple companies
3: around the world are engaging in the creation of low Earth orbit constellations or mega constellations as they're known. So that pollution is going to start to become more and more noticeable as tens of thousands of these launch.
10: As this simulation shows, thousands of low-orbit satellites will be visible to the naked eye, but the trails they leave put astronomy's task of answering the big questions under threat. Outdated space treaties mean the companies have been able to race to orbit with very little regulation. Cosmologist Dr Richard Easter.
9: So I think there is a deliberate attempt to kind of stake a claim, um, rather than to wait and see what happens. If you get there first, then other people are going to have to work around you.
10: Three, two, one, zero. Ignition, and liftoff. On Friday, Starlink launched its latest batch of 60 satellites. Elon Musk has been willing to work with astronomers to reduce the brightness of their satellites, although it's not clear how much that's been achieved. This is an engineering problem. It can have an engineering solution. There's a New Zealand connection to the Starlink trains we see overhead. One of its ground stations is just outside Invercargill. And our most successful space business, Rocket Lab, has just announced it's getting into the mega-constellation business with its Neutron rocket, and plans to launch satellite clusters in a few years from the US. A tracking station on the Chatham Islands will be part of the infrastructure. So we've come to Rocket Lab in Auckland to ask CEO Peter Beck about those plans. Where can't, what can't we film Peter?
5: Uh, Well you can film uh, the majority of the the launch vehicle but uh, there are some some pieces of intellectual property that we prefer, we right. don't show to them.
10: So you were with, there's a lot of discussion about um, low Earth orbit being kind of a wild frontier, the wild oh, west we're part un- of that discussion. No,
5: no, we're, we're part of that discussion. In fact, I went to the UN in Geneva to talk about this. Um, you know, we, we've been very, uh, you know, very open with, with our view that um, there needs to be regulation in this area.
10: But, but maybe that's not going to be good for your plans around Neutron if it's over-regulated. Not,
5: not at all, I mean, because ultimately it's all about doing it sustainably. Um, And, you know, there's no doubt that we need these services in space down on Earth. I mean, uh, we we all use uh, space infrastructure every day. Um, We all expect to get on our phone and pull up Google and be able to get directed to where we want to go or call up Uber Eats and the guy arrives at your house. Everyone expects these kinds of things. So there's no doubt that we have to build infrastructure in space.
10: We're asking those that have moved to high ground or inland to remain where you are. Peter Beck offers the example it was a satellite that warned us last week of a possible tsunami.
5: So what trade do you want to make? So we show, So, do we No, no more satellites so you don't have any of that warning system anymore?
3: We should never be in this kind of false dichotomy where we're saying you can have something but we're going to take something away
10: from you. Michelle Bannister is herself a star of the astronomy world, with an asteroid named after her. She's hopeful astronomers and the space industry can work together. So is Peter Beck, who points out most of the constellations rocket lab will launch, will not be at low orbit. The companies also develop technology, which means their rockets do not shed debris.
9: We seem to be nearing the threshold for the feared Kessler syndrome.
10: As the number of satellites and debris increases, so does the chance of chain reaction collisions. The question is, how bad are we going to let that get? And without a degree of international global cooperation around it, it is going to be a problem. New Zealand's space economy is now worth $1.6 billion. We now have a space agency. In a statement, its director told Q&A, We agree that mega constellations and the growing number of space objects are an issue which requires global coordination to solve. New Zealand can only regulate objects launched from our territory. Like Dr Bannister, Emeritus Professor John Hernshaw has been part of an international team trying to update a UN space treaty on satellites.
8: We are asking all member states of the UN to look at the report and say whether they support it. We hope New Zealand will do that.
10: Pressure for more action is mounting here with dark sky tourism growing fast and more focus on the cosmos with the formalising of Matariki.
9: The New Zealand government certainly has obligations um, to to Māori and to preserve the the things that Māori in particular value. We have very unexpectedly for a small nation, um, become a, a you know, country that has to regulate space launch and there's only you know, a dozen countries in the world that can do that. And so we have a particular role to play here and I think you know people do talk about this as an issue of you know Tanga, you know our ability to act as a guardian of the natural world.
3: The night sky like this is a tanga. this is a treasure that we have that is something that is the the common heritage of everyone.
5: As a whole species really, we we need to have a much bigger discussion about how we utilise space in a way that benefits everybody.
10: Meanwhile, those in remote areas of the world are getting connected to the rest of us as Starlink rolls out its internet. And Peter Beck tells us he'd love to bring the constellation launching rocket Neutron to New Zealand and eventually put people on it. Watch this space.
0: That was reporter Fina Owen. Now before we leave you this morning we want to let you know about a series of special programmes we will be producing this year on Q&A. As COVID-19 forces the world to pause we want to take the opportunity to consider the issues that will define New Zealand's future. So next week we're going to do the first of our one hour specials. The kaupapa immigration. What is important to you for New Zealand's immigration policy in the future? For now though thats That is Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching and nga Koto Thank you for your contributions. Thank you to the Q&A team. Mirai is up next. We will see you for that special next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On air.